Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hi, I'm Alice Living, best-selling author, personal trainer, and host of Give Me Strength, where we discuss the positives of living a stronger life physically and mentally with the hope to inspire you to do the same. Welcome to Give Me Strength. Today, we are covering a subject that we have never done on my podcast. I'm really excited about it. I am joined by Kate Moyle, who is a course accredited and UKCP registered psychosexual and relationship therapist, as well as being a certified psychosexologist. Now, Kate specializes in working with those that are struggling with difficulties with their sex lives and sexuality, including many in their 20s and 30s who are impacted by the stresses of modern life. Kate has written a brilliant book, which I got my hands on, called The Science of Sex, which we're going to talk about today, which covers almost every question you could ever ask about your sex life. And I think it is really an essential read for all of us. So Kate, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. And I love it when people say we've never talked about this before, because that's basically the conversations that I have every day as a job. Well, exactly. And yeah, we're going to go into that. And especially talking about sex, I think it's such an important thing that we learn how to do. Um, but first of all, I thought I'd just ask, like, you know, I said in my introduction that you're a psychosexual therapist and as someone who has no idea what that actually entails, talk to me a little bit about one, what led you down this career path and two, what it actually means to be a psychosexual therapist. Yeah, I think it's a career or, um, a therapy that lots of people don't know exists until they start to look for it. And the amount of times people have said to me, God, I just didn't even know that was that was a thing. In a nutshell, it's talking therapy for specifically for sexual and relationship difficulties. So we are trained in how the kind of body works, how hormones work, physically what's going on, but also understanding the psychological side of how we function sexually and what might be going on for us sexually. And really it started for me, I was studying psychology and it kind of went down the path of starting to talk about sex and relationships. And I was really interested in why when we started to talk about sex and I started studying it and that people kind of bristled slightly or changed their bodies or changed their facial expressions. And I was like, that in itself is a really interesting thing. And the more I did it, the more I loved it. And the more the conversations I was having with people, the more I realized this is kind of the part that people are continuing to keep hidden. And that just made me think that we need more people who are helping people to work that out. And it is such a deeply personal thing, isn't it? Like, I think we're almost sort of getting used to the fact that, you know, people will have therapy and we'll talk about our emotions and our feelings, but to talk about our sex lives, it almost feels like that deeper layer. And there's so much kind of, I'll use the word like shame, embarrassment, um, awkwardness to talk about our sex lives, that it's almost like, yeah, we can talk about the top level stuff, but if we dig a little bit deeper, you're absolutely right. It just feels a little bit more uncomfortable to talk about no matter how confident you are. And I think that's why, you know, my second question is really around why talking about sex is such a taboo subject. I mean, it's so funny, isn't it? Because it's it's really something that almost all of us do at some point in our lives. And yet we are still so uncomfortable with just having conversations around it, even, even with some pe people that are closest to us, you know? So why do you think it's still such a taboo subject? I think it's such a historical thing, but I think something you just said there, even with the people closest to us, I actually think talking to the people closest to us are the hardest people to have the conversation with. I often say, ironically, the hardest person to talk to about sex is the person you're having sex with. And I think there's so much that's historical about it. I think that it's really, it's never been compulsory. It's never been like compulsory education in the way that was kind of beyond the reproductive and the biological. There's a lot of history, which is steeped in um, ideas about who we should have sex with, the right kind of sex, the wrong kind of sex, that in some cultures and historically was something just between husband and wife and only within a marriage. And we haven't developed a culture, but then 
the first sexual revolution happened, so the pill in the 60s, that was a huge change. And then the internet, again, changed everything, but the conversation hasn't caught up. So suddenly sex was available and everywhere, and, you know, it's in advertising campaigns and it's kind of hinted, it's um, in every Netflix series, but the everyday average kind of messy conversation of it never caught up so we only then had these kind of really polarized versions which is the glamorized and then the problematic and I think that what that's reinforced is that we only talk about sex when there's a problem so when we have to talk about it and it's this kind of back and forth between those two things yeah, absolutely. I, I do think you're so right. And, and I'd never really thought of it that way that we either see like this, this one end of the spectrum where it's like sex is amazing, and we should be all having loads of it and look at how glamorous it can look in movies. And the other end, which is there's a problem and I need to deal with it kind of thing. And there's never that that middle ground. And I'm going to go into that as well, like what is normal sex. But one thing I wanted to, to cover, I guess, before we before we really dig in is, is there a way of making talking about sex a little bit easier? Like, are there any ways that you find with the people that you work with, you can help people to maybe feel a bit more comfortable or any language changes that you might use or ways to kind of help one get into talking about it because it is still quite an awkward subject? Definitely. And I think, you know, I'd love to caveat that by, caveat that by saying, I think it's more awkward for more people than it's not awkward for. So I think the awkwardness, the shame, the embarrassment, everything you said earlier, I would suggest that is widely generally more the norm than it is for people to feel comfortable having these conversations. And I think it's a really important point to make. Really, I think it's just doing it. And I think therapy, when people come in for psychosexual therapy, you know, it can take quite a while to warm up, but also just the practice of doing it, you think, okay, it's not as bad as I thought it was going to be. I mean, sometimes obviously it is incredibly hard. And I wouldn't say that a lot of people in general enjoy <laughs> psychosexual therapy, but at least at the start, because you're battling with all of those feelings that come up, which are in general more negative than positive. But something I say to people is kind of surround yourself with conversations. So whether it's podcasts or listening to TED Talks or just get used to hearing other people talk about it in different ways is a really good first step. And then if you want to talk to your partner about it, kind of setting up the conversation so saying do you think we could have a conversation about sex at some point this week so not springing it on your partner or not feeling that it's really loaded or critical so a lot of people assume that's going to be a really critical conversation so they're immediately defensive and framing it again with positive language so you know I love that this is something that we do together but do you think we should try something different so even those little things you know I would say it's not actually rocket science but we have to break through a bit of a barrier in terms of how we're feeling about it because we would always always rather avoid things that feel awkward embarrassing shameful you know and make us anxious our, our natural instinct is always rather to avoid and it's so funny isn't it how like you know within a loving relationship that should be the most comfortable and and comforting space to be able to talk about things like our sex lives but yet it's almost like you know when you said you know sort of put it on the back burner it's one of those things that actually we can all be so avoidant over just because it makes us feel a bit like weird talking about it even though like I said it should be you know with someone that you love and who you hopefully feel safe and um you know trusted by it's still really weird to be like, yeah. can we have a chat about our sex life? You know? Yeah. And I think we have this really romantic view and um, Alain de Botton, who's just been on some amazing podcasts talking about this, always talks about the kind of romanticism and the romantics view of the fact that our partners, we assume or we think if we love our partners and we're in these kind of emotional relationships and deep relationships that our partners should just know and therefore, we think that by talking about it, that that means that there might be something wrong. But no one can just know exactly what's going on for their partners unless they're a mind reader, of which none of us are. Uh, but it, it all ties up to that stuff as well. Absolutely. You know, just to start at the very bottom, um, pardon the pun. <laughs> <laughs> 
Talk to me about our basic human sexual needs, because I think that's a really good place to start in terms of like we all know that within most of us, there's like a, a kind of basic level of human sexual desire. What do we know about like how that manifests and does that differ from person to person? Like what do you kind of start out as like, this is our kind of human basic sexual needs and a kind of good place to I guess start talking about sex yeah so people who are not asexual so asexual people are people who have no interest in sex so there are some people that kind of fit that category or no desire for sex no want for kind of sexual experiences so that is a um you know one kind of grouping I suppose of people that that's this conversation is less relevant or not relevant for but we know that we have these two processes going on. So one is arousal, which is the body's physical and psychological process of preparing for sex. So that's basically the process of getting turned on, your body doing the things that make sex possible and comfortable. So for men, getting erections. For women, lubrication, increased blood flow to the genitals, which increases sensitivity. And a lot of this is going on with hormones. So we know that people often report feeling um, hornier at different points in their menstrual cycle. But again, none of this stuff is perfect and um, universally applicable to everyone. So we also have individual differences always going on. So we know that that physical side obviously plays a part in it. And then we have desire, which is the motivation and the kind of moving towards the wanting of sexual experiences, which is psychological. So those two things often happen together, but do not always happen together. They are separate processes and they are impacted by things like positive experiences, by trauma, by pain, by medical conditions, by medications, by relationship difficulties, by um, psychologically things like trying to conceive, which might change the meaning of sex, being postnatal. I mean, the list goes on and on and on and on and on, aging. So natural processes as well. And so what we're kind of understanding is that these things are happening and we approach them as psychosexual therapists with what we call a biopsychosocial model, which is understanding that sex is something which is biological, psychological, and hope happens in our social context, which means that how we think and feel about it also plays a part. Yeah, that, that's so interesting that you say that because I've really just got this understanding of sex being about brain, body, and then also context as well. And so, you know, there's Oh, yeah, I'm trying to think of other examples where there's so much impact of like what the brain and the body are doing in terms of like, like you said, the kind of basic human instinct versus what the brain is telling us to to do with those instincts versus, you know, our own context of how we come to sexual experiences, whether that be because of trauma or pain or like you said, you know, the list goes on. But I do think that that, that it makes for such an interesting dynamic then because it's not just about, you know, um, any other or, or autonomous human instincts that just sort of happen and we don't really think about them. Sex is one of those things that there's so much brain involved as well. And, you know, I, I think that in speaking to my own, you know, social group about, you know, when I have had conversations about sex, I think it's almost the brain that is so overpowering sometimes over those human instincts. And I think that's where I'm sure you see most people in your clinic, right? Yeah, we'd say the brain is the biggest sex organ because it just plays such a massive part. And it's, you know, we could have that, what people often describe as a kind of real animal urge, for example, or people who are really turned on, but they might be having sex with, um, let's just say a really recent ex and they know it's not good for them, but they really want to have sex. And they've got that really kind of, um, you know, turned on kind of like drive feeling, but they also, can't detach that from the psychological, which is, I know that this isn't going to be good for me. And so of course that's going to have an impact because our thoughts have such a mediating effect on sex. I think that actually leads me on to my next question as well. Cause I, I would say that, um, you know, this is not speaking from for everyone, but I think one of the things that can be most challenging when it comes to sex, and I'm sure you see this, you know, with your own patients is, marrying the idea of how we think sex should be with what our actual sex lives are like. So often we can feel as if our kind of sex lives are maybe lacking because there's a disparity between 
what goes on in real life and what we see on films, whether it's in TV or, or even in porn, you know. So I, I would really love to hear how you help people to learn to kind of write their own sexual narrative and what you think is really helpful in doing that. Because I know in myself, you know, we all have this kind of picture perfect idea of what we think our sex life should look like. And so if it doesn't match that, or if our reality doesn't match that, how do you help people to kind of like, again, like I said, write their own narrative of what sex can look like for them? I'm smiling so much because you basically just summed up what I do as a job. <laughs> if you need a career shift, um, I think you're, I think you're well placed. So should is a banned word in my therapy room because so often people come in and they say to me, oh, well, I should be doing this. We should be having this much sex. It should be like this. And I always say, I say, who said should? And the reality often is that the answer is society. There's never, there's never, there's no, you know, there's no rule book for this stuff. But so many of us, I think it's the expectations, honestly, that get in most of our heads a lot of the time and are the things that make us feel like we're not good enough. And that in itself is such a turnoff, is such an interrupter to our sex lives. And these ideas of should, yes, they come from the versions of sex that we're kind of permanently presented with. We're never going to look as good as them because quite honestly, most of them aren't real. Or they are designed, they're curated, a bit like, you know, the way we think about social media being a, a curated reality. We always think, oh, my, my life is not as good as that. You know, my body doesn't look as good as that. My holiday didn't look as good as that. <laughs> so you're constantly kind of comparing this version of yourself. But also with the lack of the normalized conversation, that's what doesn't close the gap. And where we have gaps, we fill them ourselves with our assumptions. And because we are lacking in this normalizing conversation about sex, our assumptions are obviously always the worst versions of us and how we're doing and that we're the only one. And I think that is what we really, really struggle with. And because then we think, okay, well, it doesn't look like everyone else is having these problems. So it must just be me. Layer that with the shame and embarrassment that we we kind of culturally have around sex. And that really starts to get in your head and really starts to think that the problem is you and you're the only one with a problem. When we know, particularly in my world, that you're not the only one. The most recent NatSAL survey, which is the biggest survey we have of sex lives and sexual behaviors, suggested that 40% of people in this country are unhappy with their sex lives or not satisfied with their sex lives. And that's huge. That is actually a shocking statistic. Like, that's almost, you know, just of half of us being unhappy with our sex lives. And I do think that, you know, I'm not not an expert, you're the expert, so you tell me, but I do think that so much of that is coming from this, like you said, use the word, expectation of what our sex Mm. lives should look like versus what the reality then is. And I think expectation also, you know, I used the word, uh, word in that first question that I posed to you was porn has... A massive impact on that, I think. Um, and we hear a lot about the the damaging aspect of porn, especially more recently, like I've heard a lot about kind of how porn can really impact our sex lives in a negative way. And so I wanted to ask you really how you feel about that. Do you feel like that's having an impact again on that expectation of what we think sex should look like? Do you think it can be a positive thing within a, you know, within a sexual relationship? What's your take on porn? I think that the problem that we have is that porn is the most readily available sexual content. I think that what has happened is that a lot of people have used it as an educational tool when it was not designed to be one. And again, because of the the gaps that we were just talking about, the conversational gaps, the normalizing gaps, it's meant that people have lent into it. Now, the reality, someone actually said, and I know, I have no idea who it was, but that learning about um, sex from watching porn is like learning to drive from watching The Fast and the Furious. And I think it's a really, really good analogy. And I would love to give the credit to whoever it was that said it. But, you know, it has a function and it has a role for lots of people in that it can help them explore um, desires that for some people that there might be like particular types of pornography that they might not feel as represented and they might that might help them to connect with it. That, But the way that people use it is important. And like everything in life, you know, there is plenty of good and plenty of bad and there's this huge huge range of it but 
when people have used it to kind of set up their versions of sex, inevitably what it means is as a human without, you know, a direct team, without a lot of assistance, without the right lighting, without these, you know, these people who are in porn are chosen for certain reasons that as an average person, we're not going to measure up. And I think that can create a real difficulty for people, but also people might be reenacting what they see in porn a lot of the time without the kind of knowledge and experience of doing it, either whether it's safely or without consent or without talking to their partners about what they like. And that's where, again, it's another gap. And, you know, one of the chapters in my book is called the sex gaps for exactly this reason, because there are so many of them that kind of permeate our sex lives. And you asked before about, you know, how we break away from these shoulds you know, one of the exercises I do with people in therapy is we write down all of their beliefs about sex, all of their shoulds about sex, all of, and we, we go through them one by one and we pull out, you know, what are the myths here? Or where did I hear that? Or do I think this is helping me? And we kind of question every single one. And so often, you know, those beliefs that set us up, those narratives are really unhelpful and are actually the reason that we feel that we're struggling or failing with sex in the first place. And they come from such a range of things. Yes, pornography being one of them, but the the kind of knock-on effect is, is far wider. I think with porn as well, I I think that it's such a, um, t- it, even more so than sex, actually, it's such a taboo subject. And so there's a level of secrecy involved in it that actually, you know, it, and I'm surprised that people do talk so openly about it in your clinic because I think particularly you know, if people have certain kinks or like you said, certain things that they're into that maybe are a bit more left field um, or that they start watching it really young or that they watch a lot of it, you know, but whatever it is, again, there's a range of things that we could talk through. But I do think that it's just one of those things that's like shrouded in secrecy. And so when it comes to addressing certain issues within porn, like being like, oh, you know, like, is this actually a normal thing to happen during sex? Or is that something that I should be doing? Um, I don't think we have those conversations. So, you know, when you said about kind of repeating behaviors that we see happening in pornography, I think that it's almost like, because we're not talking about it, and we're not saying, oh, haha, you know, like, God, I don't do that or whatever. I think there's so many things that I recognize in my own, you know, conversations that I have with my girlfriends, where it's like, you know, when you're growing up and you're having your first sexual experiences, you just kind of repeat certain things because you think that you have to. And I and I love what you said about therefore going through those beliefs, you know, um, and just understanding why they come from. Because all of us mm. have this like history of sexual experience that builds to where we are today. And whether we realize it or not, some of that's not always positive. And it can create these kind of really complex approaches to sex that, that are challenging and maybe making us not have the best experience we possibly can and I think that um yeah I do think that porn has a big responsibility within that and what we've seen is as a result of that that there are now a wave of ethical and feminist pornographers and there's a platform um, which was founded by someone called Cindy Gallup called Make Love Not Porn which is real couples using their sex lives and their content in order to allow people to have a different experience which is that kind of less perfect more realistic more normalized side of sex and I think that it's it's interesting when you when there's a problem created then people are always ahead and kind of thinking about the next solution and I think that we'll see more and more of those of those changes coming in but also that porn literacy which is basically the kind of educational element of it which is about understanding that the internet's not going to go away, that this stuff isn't going to go away. How do we then educate to buffer the impact of that? And we know that, you know, for example, social media has, although all of these laws in place and kind of rules in place and regulations in place, that there is a lot of stuff slipping through. There's a lot of stuff available and that people know that. And so whilst there are regulations in place, they're not necessarily always working. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. Thank you for that recommendation as well. Um, so I, I think one of the things that's really important to talk about within sex, like we have a predominantly 
female listenership here and I know that something I hear many women struggle with is sexual confidence and I think particularly connected to body confidence uh, whether that be that they've gone through body changes maybe they're postnatal maybe they're going through the menopause maybe they're going through you know a body composition change whatever that may be um, I do think that how we feel about our bodies paints a huge kind of picture of how we then enter into our sexual experiences and I think it can really hold a lot of women back because they feel so self-conscious or so you know uneasy about their bodies that it actually limits their sexual experiences and I think that I'm sure it's something that you cover in your clinic so I wondered if you could kind of kind of talk to me a little bit about how you help women to become more sexually confident particularly in relation to their bodies. Yeah I mean we can't detach body confidence or body neutrality or how we feel about our bodies from sex because there's something quite exposing about sex both physically, but also psychologically. And one of the biggest things that I work with men and women, but particularly women around is how the distraction that they experience being preoccupied by thinking about their body therefore interrupts sex. So they are completely preoccupied with the thoughts, with thinking more about their partner's experience of them and their body than their own experience. And what that creates is, is a disconnect between their desire and their arousal and what's going on for them physically. And whether it be a lack of body confidence, whether it be about negative feedback or perceived negative feedback from a partner or, um, you know, just also in daily life, not necessarily from a sexual partner, but just in um, everyday life, not feeling good about ourselves, feeling low confidence, low self-esteem, whether it's um, a breakup, whether it's that we are struggling with miscarriage or trying to conceive infertility, um, being postnatal, feeling like our body has changed, perimenopausal, menopausal, going through cancer, hormone treatment. I mean, the list goes on and on and on, but really it's about how we feel in ourselves. And I'm someone who went through um, secondary infertility myself and had like a lot of kind of medical interventions and a lot of um, treatments. And for lots of people, when you go through experiences like that, sometimes you need to disconnect with your body just to get through it. And people, particularly when they've been through medicalized situations like that, will explain or kind of explain feeling similarly because it almost feels advantageous or it feels easier to kind of disconnect and just be like, I just need to get through this. You know, I'm just going to kind of separate things out. But then we want to bring them back together. And that feels like a real challenge because we've done something protectively and psychologically we're then kind of in this place we're thinking hold on why do I want to go back to the thing that I knew was going to hurt me more and what often happens is we see things like orgasm being interrupted because what we need for orgasm is for us to be kind of mind and body in line so we talk about concordance which is when the two things are kind of working together and often when we're distracted preoccupied or concerned about our body we're not feeling what's going on in our body because we're so in our heads and that can stop us experiencing pleasure, reaching orgasm, climax, or just feeling like we're in the moment. There's something called spectatoring people describe when they're almost outside of themselves looking in because they don't feel able to, to be in the moment. We'll be back after this. Welcome back to Give Me Strength. So let me ask you about orgasms then, because I can't believe we haven't yet covered it. Um, I think that often we see orgasm as being like the gold star of our sexual experience, right? It's like the pinnacle. That's what we should all be aiming for. But I think I read that in your book, there are actually different types of orgasm. And not only that, but there are also, you know, different experiences. And even that an orgasm isn't necessarily an essential part of a sexual experience as well. So I'd love to hear your, your approach to talking about orgasms, how you you know, talk about them in clinic with your clients. And I think particularly on that, like whether orgasms are the gold star of a sexual experience. I mean, orgasms are amazing and there is no denying it. But when people become preoccupied with orgasm being a goal, ironically, it can often mean that we're less likely to get there. It can mean that we're, because we're then distracted 
by the thoughts, which are, am I going to get there? Is this going to happen? Is it taking too long? Is my partner thinking that I'm taking too long? All of those things then become an interrupter. And ironically, they kind of pull us back from getting close to orgasm. But we talk about orgasm as a brain body experience. So we've got a buildup of tension in the body. We've got um, a wave of muscular contractions that go through the pelvic floor, through the pelvic floor, through the vagina. Um, We've got a massive wave of neurochemicals that make us feel really good. And that then kind of release of muscular tension. And it's a great part of sex, but it is not the be all and end all. And yes, lots of people treat it as the goal. And also that's because we have this model of sex where we typically see that intercourse is prioritized and that ends. And these are the versions, this very linear version of sex that we've all been kind of taught repetitively, which ends when the man or the person with a penis ejaculates orgasms. And then that kind of looks like the final and the ending. And again, we see this represented in films and TV. Those versions often show simultaneous orgasm also with their partner. And that again, is not always the case, but Orgasm can be achieved so many ways. We know that the most common way that it's achieved for women and people with a vulva is through clitoral stimulation, which has got the highest density of nerve endings. And that is not best achieved through intercourse, through penetrative sex. So this is where we get stuck with all of these things kind of marrying together because we then find that so many people are saying, I'm really struggling to orgasm through intercourse why is that and actually the quite simple answer is because it's not always the best way for that to happen for people but if that's the fixed version of sex that we've been given we kind of don't tend to break away from that so we're always encouraging people to kind of think a bit more flexibly about sex so we can see that that's the so through direct clitoral stimulation is the way that most people with vulvas orgasm but we can orgasm through nipple stimulation And we think that that is because in the brain, there's an area called the somatosensory cortex where the nipples are actually next to the genitals in the brain. And so, or kind of found in the same area. And also it's about repeated experiences. If we work out something that feels good for us and then we get into that position again, or we feel really relaxed and comfortable, again, that's going to have a positive effect. So we're back to that whole kind of biopsychosocial part of it. And often not people just preoccupied with whether they're going to get to orgasm, but people that, for example, might feel self-conscious when they orgasm. So I've heard lots of people say to me, you know, I really worry about what I might look like or what my body might do or how I might. And again, we then, because we get anxious or worried about it, we hold back instead of letting go. And we often talk about orgasm as letting go. I think obviously within the orgasm conversation as well is, is, you know, a lot of that was talking about in an interpersonal situation, like in a relationship setting, um, but actually also self-stimulation, masturbation, that being an important part of our orgasm journey as well. How important a piece of the puzzle, of the sexual puzzle is, is masturbation? And do you, do you kind of help people to kind of go on their own journey with that as well as, you know, within a relationship as well? Completely. And it's, I'm surprised I've got to say it. Um, but Really, masturbation is about self-pleasure. It's about exploring your body. It's a great tool for learning about yourself sexually because when you know what feels good for you and what works for you, you can then better communicate that for a partner. And particularly people who feel really anxious about sex or that they don't understand themselves. It's a great way of getting, you know, I talk about it as getting to know yourself. And this is where we also see sex toys become a part of the conversation because what sex toys can offer is a different intensity, different sensations. And for some people, they might need something more intense or they might enjoy that. But really, uh, Emily Nagoski, who is an absolute icon in my world, talks about how pleasure is the measure. And that's a big part of it. Now, how people use self-pleasure is up to them. Lots of people use it because an orgasm can help you sleep because it makes them feel calm, because it makes them feel connected to themselves just because they're in the mood for it, because they consider it to be part of their self-care routine. And again, it's all about building that sexual relationship with self. And the reality is the sexual relationship with self is the most important one we have because our partners then come into that or join us or if we have a partner. And 
we've already created that that more solid kind of foundation or platform. What do you think about, and just because, um, you know, I do think it's, imp- it's important to talk about, what do you think about introducing toys and, and external things into the sexual experience? Like, are you a fan of that? And do you think that can be a really positive thing? I think that introducing anything that breaks up routines is a really good thing because we know that our sex lives, like everything else, are susceptible to habituation. So we learn we get used to things, you know, we kind of chase the original high and it doesn't feel quite as high as it used to when it was new. And I think it's a great way of either people on their own or in relationships adding in something different. They're a great addition for being used together. And I think the the quite old or outdated narrative used to be that it was in some way kind of replacing your partner or a partner would never match up. But there are so many amazing toys which partners can use together. And they're not just for focusing on the genitals, but I often talk about using a basic vibrator and incorporating it into kind of non-genital touch. So incorporating it into a massage or teasing, building up anticipation. And again, it's about introducing new sensations that feel good. And we know that when people are satisfied sexually, that it boosts desire, it has a positive impact on desire, and then they actually want to have sex more. They're more motivated or more open to future sexual experiences because like anything in life, if we're enjoying it, we want to do it more. And if we're not feeling satisfied, it's an experience we don't want to repeat. And I guess that's kind of connected to and and a part of your book that I found really interesting was you talking about sexual comfort zones. I loved that use of that kind of like section, because I do think that sexual comfort zones is something that it really makes made sense to me in terms of like, you know, what you you referenced there about it being a habitual thing and something that we can often get into a, a bit of a kind of routine with and do the same things with and I love that idea of challenging our sexual comfort zone so can you talk to me a little bit about what you mean by sexual comfort zones and how one can maybe push their own to explore a little bit more with their partner or even with themselves yeah I think a really good basic piece of advice is if you want to start shifting things sexually change one thing every time you have sex and when I say that I don't mean that you have to check into a hotel. I don't mean that you have to wear any crazy outfits or buy anything mad, but I just, whether it's something like starting with the lights on, starting with the lights off, moving to a different room, undressing each other instead of getting into bed undressed, um, changing position, deciding not to have penetrative sex one time or introducing a sex toy, trying lube. You know, these are all little things. Sometimes even if you do things like move the pillows to the other end of the bed, and we saw this that people really struggled with this in lockdown when they were in the same spaces all the time. They had to create novelty because there was no novelty. In lots of situations, a lot of people were with each other all the time, and then trying to create something new was a massive, massive challenge. And it's very easy for us to get settled in to comfort zones when it comes to sex, you know, A lot of us have routines, which we know that we follow. You know, our partner might kind of do the move that we know means that they're interested in sex for that evening. We kind of have a plan. We know how it's going to go. And that can be great in lots of ways, but in lots of ways, it all means it becomes predictable. And predictability means that it's less exciting and less exciting means that actually we might desire it less. And we see that this is often the case, for example, with couples who have children or people who have children or couples who have been together a long time. And the reason that we then struggle to change things a bit is because we don't have that conversational element that we've, we've discussed a lot today. And so to shift it, we might feel like we, we can't just surprise our partner by trying something new. We kind of need to give them the heads up. And the more we get stuck in the routines, the harder we feel it is to change them. And so little tweaks, I think, can be a really, really good thing. And if we're interested in exploring something new, then kind of saying to our partner, how do you feel about, often if I'm working with couples particularly, we'll do a yes, no, maybe list and discuss it in session. And it means that you know where you're each aligned and not aligned. All couples will set themselves a challenge. They write kind of, 10 things each into a jar and whether it's like a date night or it's something that they want to try or something they're sexually interested in. And you kind of pick one out at random, you know, once a week, once every two weeks, whatever works for them. But I think sometimes we need 
the permission and the permission from each other to do something a bit differently. We fear so much that if we rock the boat, it's going to have a negative impact on the rest of our relationship or on the status quo of our relationship. I really want to pick up on the word you just used there, which was aligned. And I think that it's something that I am genuinely really fascinated by is that I I do hear from you know conversations that I've had, there are, there are people who are really aligned sexually and there are people who find themselves actually being quite misaligned sexually. Mm. And I'm guessing that that's something you come across quite frequently. And I'm interested to know whether you think that's a real deal breaker, you know, if one person's got a really high sex drive and the other person really doesn't, or if one person's really into something, you know, quite obscure and some someone is really uncomfortable with doing that, you know, how do you find yourself, I guess, helping people to find, as you use the word, alignment? And is there sometimes cases where actually that can be really crucial to the success of a relationship, whether they are sexually aligned? Like, how important is that? I think that... There's a real irony again, or a real gap again, in the fact that we expect couples to be perfectly sexually aligned. I would argue that it's rare for couples, very rare, to be perfectly sexually aligned. And so therefore, what we're doing in relationships is always negotiating the difference. And we talk about um, a discrepancy in desire or a mismatch in desire. What we see at the start of relationships is that there is a lot of desire, perhaps a lot more sexual activity, a lot more interest, that we prioritize sex over other things, that we, that people call it the honeymoon phase, that typically that's really kind of hot at the start of relationships. What of what's lots of what people describe as spontaneous sex happening, they can't keep their hands off each other. And then that starts to change and that starts to fade. Now, we often see a discrepancy in desire, which we only know really how to measure by amount of sex or regularity of sex. So often people say, I want to have sex twice a week. My partner only wants to have sex once a month. How do we work that out? If you ask most people, they will say the amount of sex you think they think they should, back to that word again, be having is once a week. It's just the number that everyone gives. But the reality is if you're having sex twice a year and that's what you both want and you're both satisfied with, then that is also absolutely fine. Like there is no no level of normal. But what happens, and I know we're really focusing the conversation on couples here, is typically when couples are misaligned and they can't negotiate it, they're not open to each other or kind of seeing how they can change things, is sex then becomes the problem and it's the meaning of sex that's often the problem or the meaning of the lack of sex that's also often becomes the problem. And then it comes a conflict point. And then couples start having sex even less or not really enjoying the sex they're having because they're feeling resentful or they're feeling like they're doing it for the wrong reasons. And it becomes a real difficulty. And then we also really often see a pulling away of the things that might lead to sex. So the physical intimacy, you know, kissing, hugging, approaching each other in bed, um, kind of any kind of snuggling up to each other, those things tend to fall away because of the association they have with leading to sex. And that becomes a problem for couples. So it's desire and particularly what we call responsive desire. So when we are instead of feeling turned on and then acting on it, we start something with our partners and then the desire to continue kind of emerges and that's when we start to fill in that sexual space, which is what happens for lots of people in long-term relationships. We seem to think that that's problematic, but actually it's fine, but we have to be open to our partners in order all the time for those things to start, for those things to happen. What It's what we call sexual currency is something that we really use to help couples to negotiate that gap, which is anything that you do with a partner that isn't sex but has a kind of sexual charge is something that you'd only do with a partner. So all those things I just previously mentioned. And again, and then you said kind of different um, interests or desires. Again, it's about working out, okay, so how, if you're really interested in, let's say, power play, but it's something I feel really uncertain about. Is there a way we can start it gently? Is there a way that we could try it? And how do I feel about this? Okay, well, that is definitely not for me, but I would be open to trying this. And that's where something like a yes, no, maybe list can can really come in. But expecting ourselves to be perfectly sexually aligned is, 
I think, unrealistic and actually quite a damaging belief when it comes to our sex lives. Definitely. You know, a lot of what we've spoken about today, our context of how we approach sex is so relevant and so important. Our lived experiences and whether those be positive or negative, they impact how we how we approach sex as we as we get older and go through life. And I think that sexual trauma is something that can really shape our sexual experiences. And I'm really interested to hear about how you work with people. Because I think for a lot of people who have experienced sexual trauma, it's quite hopeful for them to hear someone like yourself say that it's it's possible to work through it and come out the other side and have an enriching sexual experience, you know, post-sexual trauma. So I know that you can't be super specific, but how do you work with people to really have uh, you know, a thriving sex life after experiencing sexual trauma. Yeah, and this is something I talk about on my podcast. So I have a podcast where um, I interview different experts on different topics, and this is one of the most requested ones, you know, of course, because trauma can kind of turn our world upside down and mean that we don't trust anything. We don't trust the world we live in, and sex can be a lot about trust. And really it is possible to work through sexual trauma but being gentle with ourselves taking time we might need to rebuild a relationship with our body in a different way to understand how touch can be non-traumatic non-consensual but also we might feel like we're completely kind of detaching ourselves from the situation we're dissociating we are having really intense physical reactions that we're hypervigilant you know all of the things that can really clash with sex so there's a really brilliant app actually called furly which is trauma informed and was set up by two women who'd experienced sexually traumatic experiences and they have guided episodes and content which can help you to kind of re-establish a safe connection with yourself and i would say anything like that taking it slowly being kind to yourself um, are really important but often we do need to rebuild sex in a safer way and I know that sounds quite therapy but it's back to the biological physical side of it but also the psychological side of it we need to learn to first feel comfortable again so safe again comfortable again and then to feel confident again and that can be a a stage-by-stage process. Yeah, I think it is. It's a journey, isn't it? And I think anyone that is interested in in listening to those episodes will put a link to Kate's podcast in the show notes if that's helpful. Moving on to my final question. It's a big one, so strap yourself in. But I thought I would ask you your top five tips for a thriving sex life. What are the things that you feel really help people to get the most out of their sex lives to finish us today? Well, that's a huge question. (laughs) (laughs) I I think actually something you've said and I've been furiously like nodding along with you. I know this isn't on video, but um, is the context, recognizing your context. I think we think about sex as something static, something fixed, and it just isn't. And recognizing that your context can have such a big effect on your sex life and that your context, which is not sexual. So work being really stressful, um, feeling like you're struggling with your body, uh, feeling preoccupied because you have recently had a bereavement or you're worried, you know, there's so many things going on. I think sometimes taking a little step back and being like, okay, well, what's going on for me in general at the moment can be really, really helpful. Trying to not, when you start struggling with sex or if you're struggling with sex, be really self-critical, kind of pull yourself apart, shame yourself, Um, what Julia Samuel who's an amazing psychotherapist calls the shitty committee which is in our head kind of always giving us a hard time (laughs) and I think that just give yourself a chance to go back to basics which is I want to enjoy the feelings that I'm happening in my body because pleasure is the thing that's going to get you to where you want to get to but it's the thing that's easiest for us to kind of pull our attention away from when we're really distracted number three I would say listen to multiple voices and narratives I know I mentioned it earlier but I love saying to people and I love listening to them myself and constantly listening to other people talking about sex because suddenly you realize these really kind of fixed limited views of sex that a lot of us hold and were given might not necessarily be working for us and actually might be one of the things that are holding us back so sometimes listening to other people practicing the conversations and having the conversations in these quite wide and various ways, I think can be brilliant 
and a really helpful tool. If you're in a relationship, learning to talk to your partner or trying to talk to your partner. And again, framing it in a positive way or and saying to them, do you know, I feel really awkward about this. Like I feel really embarrassed about it. There are so many great resources now. Um, so many great books. There are things like card games. So like Esther Perel has a card game. The School of Life have a card game called Pillow Talks, where if you don't want to set the questions yourself, you can make it fun and ask each other the questions and see what comes up. I think not assuming you knowing everything, you know everything about your partner is quite a good stance to have that conversation from. And oh, the last one, I think getting to know your body, but also not feeling ashamed for that. I think shame is one of the most commonly associated feelings with sex. And so many of us feel that's just about us. And many of us have been shamed throughout our lives for how we talk about sex, have sex, think about sex and recognizing that that's something outside that of all of us, which is kind of coming in rather than that it's just about us as a person. And there's something to be done around kind of, I think, self-acceptance and working through that. But if you are struggling, please, please, please reach out for help. There are so many amazing psychosexual therapists and sexologists, like books, podcasts, apps, products, um, so many great kind of sexual health creators and content creators now. And you might find that some of them are quite hard to find because there's a lot of shadow banning that goes on around that, even when the stuff is not explicit, but is sexually educative and sexual health based. But please don't feel like you have to stay where you are. Like there are so much information available and I would just encourage people to take the risk if they feel like it's a risk and to go and find it brilliant advice Kate thank you so much that was really insightful there was so much that we could have gone into that we're already an hour down and I'm like oh my god I've got so many more questions that I could ask you I think you know talking about the cultural aspect of sex as well is really important you know there's so many other things that we could have gone into but for now I'm going to leave it there because that was absolutely fascinating and a really open and honest chat about sex and I'm, I'm really grateful for your time and your energy today so thank you and we will put the link to Kate's book which I highly recommend you reading it, it's basically like every question you could ever think of about sex answered so if you're wondering about where to start following this conversation I'd really recommend giving that a read um, but also the link to Kate's podcast and any other bits in the show notes Kate thank you so much you so much for listening i really hope you enjoyed that episode i would love it if you could take some time to rate review and follow the podcast as it really helps others to find it we have a new episode dropping each week so this will also ensure you don't miss out see you next time insanity group